Welcome, everyone, to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 169, and we're reviewing The Boy and the Heron. As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode. Everyone in this home is sick, except for me. And I guess our, our son. So half this house is, is sick. Well, he just had like a, a runny nose. That was but... like a while ago. Yeah. And Rigby just threw up a couple minutes ago. I know, like just a few minutes before recording, we hear... Anyone who has a dog or a cat probably knows the very distinct sound of your your animal about to throw up. As for me, you can probably tell from my voice that I am battling something right now. I don't know exactly what caused this to happen. Um, I feel like I do get sick around the holidays every year because I remember last year something similar happened. I don't know if it's just because I'm so fervently waiting for Christmas that it just makes me sick, but... Sick with anticipation? Yeah, but I'm going to try to get through this. I do have some tea with honey next to me, and hopefully that will alleviate some of this sickness. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're talking about a very interesting Studio Ghibli film, Um, what is supposedly or initially rumored as Miyazaki's final film as he was supposedly going into retirement. But then that wasn't the case because shortly after the movie premiered in Japan, they were like, psych, he's not retiring. So I don't know what this is, but it's a movie. In the last movie, so it's actually, I looked this up, it's Studio Ghibli. (laughs) Ghibli, okay. Well, I mean, here in the States, it's like half and half. Some people say Ghibli, some people say Ghibli. Because... I know it's spelled kind of like the Italian G-H-I-B-L-I, which would mean it would be pronounced like Ghibli, but apparently in Japanese when it's pronounced, they say Ghibli, so. Well, I will do my best to transition <laughs> to Ghibli, but I've grown up saying Ghibli, so we'll see. But yeah, I think the last film that Miyazaki had written and directed for Studio Ghibli was back in 2013 when he did The Wind Rises. Oh, I thought it was Ponyo. Ponyo was... That was further back though, right? 2008, so a couple years before. So yeah, it's been 10 years since he's come out with a film. And yeah, a lot of news media were kind of hyping this up to be his final film. And I think even the marketing had tied into that because the only piece of promotional material that had come out when the film was announced was just a poster. Uh, And it was just the heron, um, one of the main characters, but then you could see a little eye sticking out from under its beak. But yeah, eventually it had turned out that this wasn't going to be his final film. Um, According to the Wikipedia article for the movie, the vice president of Studio Ghibli said that contrary to rumors of retirement, Ghibli did not consider The Boy and the Heron to be Miyazaki's final film and that he is still maintaining a daily presence at the office working on whatever next film um, he's planning. Interesting. Okay. Well, yeah, I I got confused by the back and forth of all of it. And I'm like, so he is retiring, but he's not retiring. Either way, um, I would say this film is very interesting uh, fits his theme of obscurity and abstractness 
and I guess got me in one moment and I couldn't drive, <laughs> which will explain, I guess, uh, when we dive more into the actual movie. I feel like the sequence of Ghibli movies that we have watched, and again, we haven't watched all the Ghibli movies in like chronological order. We've kind of cherry-picked the ones that we wanted to watch and review, but I know like for our podcast, I started off with, or we started off with My Neighbor Totoro, that moved into I Spirited Away. Yeah, Spirited Away, and then Princess Mononoke. And then Howl's. Howl's Moving Castle. And then now The Boy and the Heron. I feel like as we progress more through Studio Ghibli's catalog, the movies just become more and more abstract. <laughs> um, and I was thinking earlier, like Studio Ghibli, obviously, a lot of people have a nostalgic connection to the movies that Miyazaki makes. Um, I don't have that luxury because I didn't really grow up on Studio Ghibli films. So I guess my opinions on these movies don't come from a lens of pure nostalgia. But watching this movie, I didn't have any expectations going into it because even though I had found out later that it wasn't going to be Miyazaki's final film, I found it so interesting that the initial marketing didn't want anyone to know what was going to happen in this movie. So I kind of went into it blindly too. I know there were media outlets that were showing promotional images, the trailers that came out. Um, but I tried to avoid all of that just to kind of walk in as blindly as I could. Yeah, let's talk about that for a second. Do you think there was a reason that they didn't want to share any content context, like any promotional material besides that poster that originally dropped? I don't know if it was like a social experiment to see if Miyazaki and, and Ghibli's names alone could drive people to the theater to watch this, which I, I think it could. Um, but I, I don't know, I guess with it being so secretive, I was expecting a more like crazy or grand story. Not to say that this wasn't a good story, but when someone's so secretive about something, it's usually... It's it. You have that anticipation that they're they're hiding something really, really exciting, really, really big, and I don't know if the boy and the heron lived up to the hype we were all driving up because they weren't telling us anything. Yeah, I mean, I initially thought it was because it was touted to be Miyazaki's final film, and they just wanted the movie to kind of with that weight to it kind of speak for itself for when audience goers would come in to watch the movie um, and yeah I think it also ties into what you said that Ghibli and Miyazaki have pretty much become household names for anime films and anime cinema that just knowing that the boy and the heron was going to come from these sources that people would just flock in to see it like they didn't need to market it so heavily um i think and also another thing is it feels like the film has a story that's a little bit more personal to miyazaki and his upbringing oh his upbringing 
Yeah, like okay. his like his childhood. Oh, okay. Because I was thinking like this was a story about him as a parent, like in his oh, child. Because no. I've heard I've heard how he like shit all over his son's like movie attempt or whatever, and then people were like he's a shitty dad or whatever. Oh. So for him to to create a story like this, I was kind of like, hmm, well, that's I, interesting. I think yeah, the last movie that Ghibli produced before this was by his son Goro Miyazaki, which was Earwig and the Witch. Um, oh, your wig. Ugh. Yeah, I don't. Oh, the film received negative reviews from critics. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so yeah, Mia, uh, Hayao Miyazaki was probably like, "Fine, I'll do it myself." <laughs> and he came out with this. Um, but I think just the fact that this movie almost serves like an autobiography for him, like I think that itself also garners enough intrigue, and that's probably what led the studio to, you know, very like in at the start of it limits their promotional material to let the movie just speak for itself we ended up watching this uh opening weekend for the release here in the states and the turnout was like decent compared to other anime movies that we've been to i wouldn't say it was by no means a, a packed theater it was also a very tiny theater but i feel like the turnout was was good and um it seemed like there was some decent interest overseas yeah, even one of my normie friends, <laughs> his girlfriend uh, is really big on Studio Ghibli. I think she's watched many of their films. And so he mentioned that he was excited to see the movie. Uh, I think they ended up watching the dub, uh, which I'll get into a little bit later. Um, but yeah, it, it felt like, you know, th this isn't something like my hero's third or fourth movie coming out uh studio ghibli obviously um it has built a very reputable status um in cinema so even for those people who aren't into anime they know that they're in for something special when they go to watch ghibli movies so um yeah i think this ended up taking the number one spot in the box office over the weekend so that's a testament to how much people want to watch Miyazaki films. Well, let's dive into it. Let's talk about The Boy and the Heron. As with any of our movie reviews, we're going to talk um, more open, like an open flow conversation about the, the, the movie itself um, versus following the chronological order of events. Um, but before we dive into the synopsis, let's share our initial thoughts. What were your takeaways from The Boy and the Heron, especially watching it in that theater setting? Yeah, like I said, I wanted to go into it blindly, um, having no prior knowledge about the film or its contents for, for the fun of it. Uh, I know, like I said before, that it's not his Miyazaki's final film, but I thought just that opportunity was unique enough to just go in, go in blindly and see what happens. But after watching the film, I have to say that I wasn't overwhelmed or underwhelmed. I was just whelmed. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it makes me think now. Uh, I know Studio Ghibli is typically, th their movies are geared towards children. I don't know if I would necessarily categorize this as a children's movie, or at least not in the the normal sense of the word or of the phrase children's movie because it's it's very heavy content and 
this is not your mother's Ghibli film. <laughs> I think it's very dark. It's very heavy and filled with metaphors and allegories that kind of get your head spinning. But I think, you know, Miyazaki doesn't underestimate the power of like a child's mind and uh, their intellect. So I'm sure there are maybe kids out there who did enjoy this movie um, or understood it on the levels that we did. But, you know, I think it was just so out there. And sometimes it, it stuck to Ghibli tropes that I'll admit there were some scenes where I kind of just zoned out because it it was either just too much or like not enough was happening. Um, but I think like for the typical Ghibli enthusiast, this film is probably a, a treasure trove of entertainment. But for others like myself, it might take a while to process if you only take the film's characters and its scenes and its story at face value. So my initial viewing just felt really exhausting. I think that may change with subsequent viewings because it is an interesting film. It's just, like I said, a lot to process. Uh, what were your initial thoughts, though, with watching this? So really quick, um, according to Mal, this is rated PG-13. So a bit... I wouldn't say like it's not targeted toward like a mature audience necessarily, but seems like it is uh, geared toward not children, like children. adolescents. Yeah. Mm. So with um, with watching this in theaters, I thought the experience was really good. Um, the animation, the music, all of it was really nice to see on the big screen. But similarly to Carl, I felt like the overall story was pretty abstract, which is at least in our eyes here at Strictly Anime, very much a, a Miyazaki Ghibli film trope. I think the other trope that exists um, among a lot of these movies is uh, pacing and the movie just being a little too long, like longer than it needs to be, right? Because the movie clocks in at uh, just over two hours and I easily think they could have achieved the exact same thing if they shaved it down by 30 minutes. I think an hour and a half mm. would have been a way more comfortable length for this movie, especially because I guess maybe another trope of Miyazaki um, films is that it seems like sometimes his version of world building is throwing things out there, like not arbitrarily necessarily. Like I'm sure there's some deeper meaning to all of the little nuances of the world and, and the creatures and the characters that he has in his films, again, to help build out this universe or this world. But it does sometimes feel arbitrary. Like they'll just say mm -hmm. random things or do random things, which yeah, are quirky and fun and like feels otherworldly, but it also doesn't exactly fit every single time. It doesn't hit every single time. So it does kind of feel like, okay, that's nice to know. And then we move on. And if you shave off all of those things, I think easily you could have had a very comfortable and reasonable hour and a half for this film. I think the most recent example or the, the, the example that sticks the most out in my mind is when we reviewed Princess Mononoke. That had a lot of stuff in the beginning before we finally got into the meat of things. I would say Howl's was like that too, though. It was, yeah. I think for me, like Mononoke just... There was like a lot happening with um, I don't remember the main character's name the the male lead character um, his journey to finally get to where uh, the obviously her name's not Princess Mononoke but where she's at right that felt really long and, and sometimes a little like dragged out and I felt like you could have cut back a little bit on that that initial journey 
so that the main story could start um you know moving forward it's the same thing here there's a lot of like initial stuff especially when mojito first discovers the other world um or even the beginning right where mojito is kind of like getting in getting used to his new life i understand the importance of it but it just seemed like a lot of like stuff like i i got it at a certain point i'm like okay i get it i get what's going on here we can move on to the next main you know arc or pillar of the story like it needed to just be condensed into an 80s montage <laughs> kind of maybe <laughs> but um beyond that i think that the title the english localized title does not fit at all i do not like that they chose the boy yeah. and the heron i think it is a crime that they did not use the um i believe this is the direct translation of the japanese title based on mal but it's how do you live i think that would have been a way better uh title for the localized version they should just kept that original title it has so much more meaning it has um so much of a deeper connection to what's going on in this movie because honestly the heron did not feel like a main character to me so to call it the boy and the heron i was kind of like so when does the heron become more significant in the story yeah the heron's just there's kind of like a catalyst to set things in motion um yeah i do have a little bit more to say about the japanese title um but just high level how do you live is actually a novel um i I guess that the movie kind of took inspiration from but it's not like a direct adaptation uh but yeah i think thematically it fits in more with mahito's journey in this movie um in terms of like how he has to deal with the loss of his mother and kind of the feelings and sentiments that he goes through um, in order to find a way to better himself out of that situation. Yeah, and, and directly ties into that very brief but very important moment where he discovers the book that his mother, I believe, like left for him. And I think it's titled How Do You Live, which may be a reference to the book that um, inspired this movie. So yeah, there's like some misses here um, that... I think they don't ruin the experience, but I'm kind of like, why were these choices made in the way that they were? But overall, I I think the story, like the core story might be one of my favorites so far amongst Yo Ghibli, even if the execution of that story was a bit abstract and, and sometimes convoluted. So I'm excited to talk more about the actual story. So let's jump into the synopsis. All right, Strictly fam, try not to pull your heron out as we dive into our synopsis and discussion for The Boy and the Heron, also known in Japan as How Do You Live, the 2023 Japanese animated fantasy film from Studio Ghibli, written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. It was the best of times, it was the World War II of times, as Mango Mahito sees his life literally go up in flames at the loss of his mother and his father's subsequent marriage to her younger sister, whom at present is carrying his half-sibling. They move from the big city to the old countryside, where the family is attended to by a bunch of obachans and an avian annoyance in the form of a heron, but Mango Mahito smells too much of teen spirit and wallows in his angst and a late birthday gift from his late mother to pay them any attention. Until his pregnanante stepmother wanders off without a trace, and he and Obachan 3 follow her to Hal's stationary castle built by his granduncle. 
the heron returns to fuck around with claims that Mango Mahito's mother meanders within the monolith, but quickly finds out when the boy discovers that it's literally a watermarked copy and subsequently ruins the heron's cosplay with his makeshift bow and arrow to reveal the knobby-nosed nutcase underneath. As recompense, the heron leads Mango Mahito and Obachan 3 to the upside-down right-side-up, where old becomes young, soot sprites become warawaras, and mom becomes bomb with her great balls of fire quirk to pick off predatory pelicans that partake in prepubescent pastries. As we learn the tower's alien origins through Mango Mahito's father, who probably now regrets entertaining the thought of marrying his deceased lover's younger sibling and all the repercussions that he should have seen coming with it, the boy finds his stepmother after a pass through Parakeet Point, who resents his presence until Mahito asks her, Mother, may I? Having completed his initial objective, Mango Mahito continues on a new quest to rescue his mini-mama from the clutches of the parakeets who seem way too skilled in total concentration breathing, and the quest leads him to his granduncle wizard, who wants to hand off his throne to his young descendant so he can retire and reap the benefits of his 401k. However, Mango Mahito decides that he would rather live in the dark and dreary reality that we call life instead of the upside-down, right-side-up, which falls wayside-down anyways thanks to King Parakeet and his paranormal quest for para-power. Mango Mahito gathers up the heron, the stepmother, the entire land party to get the fuck out of Dodge, and asks Minimama to join him, but she must return to her own timeline so that Mahito can be born into this world. And so all creatures big and small escape Howl's stationary castle, but none of it fucking matters because the heron declares all of it to be non-canon before flying south for the winter. But what does matter is that Mango Mahito is now a changed youngling who has accepted his new normal as his family books a ticket back to Tokyo at the end of the war. I guess having your dad marry your mother's younger sister isn't so bad after all. So despite us kind of talking about the abstractness and uh, the, some, this film sometimes being a bit convoluted, I feel like the, the themes are pretty clear here. Um, the themes are around grief and, and loss, um, acceptance, and change. I think change is one of the biggest things that Mojito has to deal with. So you've got him sort of dealing with uh, having to move on from losing his mom and the emotions related to that. Not that he'll ever forget her, but life does still move forward. And then having to also accept Natsuko as his new stepmom while still, again, honoring, remembering, and loving his real mom. I think many children probably have difficulties in this situation, accepting the the new person as a member of their family, especially when there's a half-sibling involved and things like that. Um, But... I, I I like the way that Miyazaki approaches this um, and doesn't try to make the theme too aggressive or too heavy because it is something that Mahito is clearly grappling with. There's a lot of hinting at the fact that he's not being totally honest with himself and with others because he doesn't want to face these things head on. Which is interesting because as I mentioned in the beginning, this is sort of an autobiography for Miyazaki so a lot of elements that we see in this film are kind of drawn from his childhood um so I it makes me wonder like which elements exactly are drawn are like 
does this film draw from? Yeah, did his dad marry his aunt? That I don't know of, <laughs> but I think he did lose his mother at an early age, so I'm sure that had a profound effect on him. But with Mahito, it's like everything is being thrown at him all at once. Uh, his his mother perishes in that hospital fire. Then his dad marries his mom's younger sister, which is like a whole other thing. He has to move to the countryside and adapt to his new living environment and his new school environment. And there's a war going on amidst all of this. So it's not surprising that, you know, Mahito reacts the way that he does um, in this movie. Uh, but I, I guess you got to give him props for like someone at that age to process things and and take them in the way that he does. Because, um, again, that's that's just a lot on a kid. Yeah, and I think one of the other big themes behind this movie is the importance of family and the unbreakable bonds that they share. So really, it is a very beautiful story. Uh, but it, it sometimes, at least the way I experience it, sometimes gets soured by those weird choices, like the fact that Mojito's dad not only married and impregnated a new woman before Mahito even got to meet her. And I don't know if that's how things were back in Japan at that time, um, but it does seem a bit odd. But to, like, the cherry on top is that this new woman is his aunt. And I get it. By the end of the movie, you realize that behind the scenes, there's some, uh, there's another story at play about two sisters being in love with the same person. And, um, you know, I, I'm guessing that the younger sister, Natsuko, um, likely harbored some feelings of jealousy and then saw an opportunity to find true love in what just happens to be the same person as her older sister. But it does come off as a bit weird in the beginning of the film until all those those puzzle pieces are at play because we don't see any of the romance leading up to this. We literally just see his mom die and then the next scene, his dad's like, hey, you've got a new mom. And by the way, she's pregnant. And by the way, we're moving to Tokyo. And by the way, it's also your aunt. Yeah, it's a lot for some someone to process. And I even just a kid, just a human being in general. Yeah, and maybe that's intentional. Maybe we're supposed to feel it from Mahito's side of things. Because I'm guessing he didn't know any of this until right as it was all kind of happening. Because it is happening so rapidly for him. So maybe we are meant to feel as uncomfortable as he feels in this moment. And I know I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit, but towards the end of the film, when Natsuko's in that um, that delivery room or the birthing room, whatever they called it, um, there's that moment where, like, truths come out, right? Like, mm -hmm. uh, Mahito's called out for his attempt to try and hide his real feelings about stuff. Like, clearly he's angry, clearly he's confused, clearly he's upset. But at the same time, Natsuko also has a moment of truth where she looks at him and says, I hate you. And I hate you. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Anakin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I don't think she literally hates him. I think she is resentful of his existence, which sounds mm -hmm. probably just as harsh, because it's a reminder that her sister found true love with his dad first and she had to kind of wait um probably wondering if she would even ever get to be with him so i think she's not she doesn't hate you know mojito himself i think she just has some, just the way that things played out yeah she harbors some negative emotions related to him and his mom but i think they get past that 
Yeah, I mean, it's a strong metaphor uh, for her to say, I hate you in that room. Um, especially because, like, watching her interact with Mahito prior to all of this, you know, she's very kind, very gentle with him. I think just trying to be very understanding of his situation. And even though he's not reciprocating that because he's still processing all of these things, I think he takes note of that. Um, you know, I, I had, like, an this gut feeling that Natsuko was going to end up being like an evil stepmother trope like you see in a lot of other films. I was waiting for that too. But I, I like that it was kind of flipped on its head. And then you have this moment which kind of takes you out of it and you're like, oh, she, she's kind of a bitch. But then you see Mahito reacting to all of this. And I think he understands that she's not like, she's not being sincere in her hatred. Um, it, I think it's just, like I said, the way that things had played out in the sort of love triangle between her and Mahito's parents. Um, and I think for him to take into account what she's done for him, uh, starting with their move to the countryside and him calling her mother was like a, a good way for him to kind of reconcile with, you know, this is what reality is now, but I know that you're trying to make the best of it for me. And so I'll go on this journey with you. Yeah, and I think it's also relatable to Mahito because he realizes he's not the only one grappling with acceptance and with loss because you have to realize Natsuko also lost a family member. She lost her sister. And then she's also, I think, very worried about Mahito not ultimately accepting her because when she's sick in bed in the earlier part of the movie, she's kind of like talking to herself or sort of to him. Like she's kind of not in her right mind, but she's kind of saying like, I, I, I'm worried about you. Or I want to protect you. Um, so she's very stressed not only about having, you know, them live with her, but also having Mahito accept her as a member of his family. So I think, yes, yeah, Mahito seeing that he's not the only one who harbors feelings um, that are difficult to grapple with may have helped them to form that bond. But then there's the fucking heron, which is basically just Danny DeVito inside of a heron costume. That's all I could think the whole fucking time. And I know he's part of the the title here. He's a what a titular character. Is that what you call it? Yes. But I really, like I said earlier, I really did not feel like he was a main character at all. Um, I think he played a decently important role, but I don't think he was main character material based on the way everything played out. Yeah, I mean, there's a mystery to the heron when it's introduced um, as Mahito's getting used to the countryside. Uh, and I know there were like pretty funny scenes where like the heron goes into the tower, uh, like he sticks his like he goes in head first and his butt kind of wiggles in and then his head just pops out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like, that was pretty funny. Uh, but then, yeah, you find out that it's just this very strange looking human in a bird cosplay. <laughs> uh, and I think this kind of ties in with Ghibli films or Miyazaki films. There's this element of nature or the environment. So I think this kind of checks the box for what to expect in a Ghibli film. And also with characters, moral compasses kind of being vague. Because uh, you, you think the heron is going to be a, a strong companion for Mahito as he goes on this journey through the tower but it feels like whoever I don't think he actually has a name like the the 
guy who is in the heron. I um, Mal has it just says heron man. We're just gonna okay. call him the heron. <laughs> okay. uh, but yeah, he's he's just very, very much like a, a trickster, uh, and kind of pulls at Mahito's legs on uh, at Mahito's leg until Mahito gets an upper hand on him, and then he's kind of he feels defeated, leads him into this world, but then he just disappears for a while. Yeah, and then he comes back. At some point, I know he comes back towards the end um, when things are being tied up. But yeah, the heron was just like a, a catalyst for everything that Mahito experiences. And I kind of wanted to find like, you know, this movie's littered with metaphors and allegories. So I kind of wanted to dig into this because there's a lot of bird motifs in this film yeah what the fuck is up with the birds <laughs> yeah but, you know besides besides the heron um but to kind of start with him the way i saw it was again with him being a catalyst the heron kind of represents like a, a, a messenger like a courier for because in the movie the heron is telling mahito oh you're, you're, you'll find your mother in the tower which i guess is literally correct but then also metaphorically correct in that it's um, Natsuko who kind of becomes his uh, like stepmother or like surrogate mother, whatever term. Yeah, you want to use. Oh, that's a, that's good. I didn't I, I didn't think about that. I didn't put that. No, together. I actually just thought of that. So. Oh wow, on the fly. <laughs> um, but yeah, doing a little bit of research on like the symbolism of herons. I think the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, believe that the heron was a messenger from the gods, and in Native American culture. The blue heron brings messages of self-determination and self-reliance and represent an ability to progress and evolve. So I think this is in line with Mahito's journey because he's kind of going through his own struggle with processing and moving on from his grief. And it's all catalyzed by the appearance of this heron. And I know I'm kind of jumping ahead, but to kind of move through more of these bird motifs, you have the pelicans uh, that appear when they first enter the alternate reality, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think we had discussed this on the car ride home after the movie about how the pelicans feel like an antithesis to the imagery of like a stork as, you know, maybe in Western culture, a stork's always imagined as the, the bird that delivers a newborn baby to uh, new parents or whatever uh, but here we see them like pelicans eating the watawatas who are supposed to represent like newborn souls or, or newborn babies uh, but pelicans are commonly associated with self-sacrifice as a pelican was believed to revive its dead chicks by spilling its own blood for them um, it's they kind of use the opposite way here where they're harbingers of death um, and I don't know if it also kind of represents like miscarriages or unborn children in that sense. Yeah, we that's another part of our discussion on, on the way home when we were like digesting what, no pun intended, when we were digesting what we had seen in the theater. Um, that whole part with the Wada Wada, I love them. I think they're so fucking cute. I, I was like so happy watching them. And then when they said like, oh, they're, they're floating up to become babies. I'm like, this mm. is so nice. And then all of a sudden, the fucking pelicans <laughs> come through and start eating them. And I was like, 
I my jaw dropped. I looked at Carl in the theater and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was like, no, the babies. Yeah. But I my theory was um so the these water water are going up to to be born right to become babies but my thought is well maybe the pelicans eating some of the water water are supposed to represent miscarriages or the babies that couldn't ultimately been have been born um because i'm like why why the fuck else would the the pelicans need to kill them and eat them <laughs> yeah i mean though it's that was a really strange part of this movie but i i get the imagery now so going back to the Wada Wadas, like those are fine, but I feel like they they had to make something cute in this movie, like the soot sprites of old, um, just to have that Ghibli element to it. I completely I, agree. Yeah. yeah, I don't think I think you could have removed the Wada Wada. Okay, so uh, I I feel halfway about this. Like you could have removed the Wada Wada and basically have had the same story, but I also think you can't remove them because one of the big themes I think um that I didn't mention is kind of like life and death and the circle of life, the cycle of life where the beginning part of this section where they go to this world below the tower i think all of that represents like death right like there's souls and stuff um the boat lady comes and, and gets rid of the pelicans and says don't wake up those souls like they're at rest or whatever and the wada wada are the new lives that are going to be born so i guess there is significance for them because there's this theme about like time um and family and the again the the cycle of life um but i do also agree that like a large part of it felt like they just needed the cute thing to have a cute thing for the sake of having they a cute needed thing. the promotional items yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then the last bird motif that's very prevalent in this film are of course the parakeets which you know it was hard to kind of research um symbolism of parakeets and try to tie them into this movie but one thing i found is there are kind of tie-ins to the the setting of this film which is japan or imperial japan in the midst of world war ii and a lot of theories that i had seen on reddit believe that parakeets are kind of tied to fascism um which is symbolized with the parakeet king and his followers Someone thought they were based off of the Italian fascist leader Mussolini and you know his his followers, his troops, and European fascism kind of bleeding into Japanese imperialism, which I feel like this kind of symbolism is in line with Miyazaki's anti-war and pacifist ideologies. I think you see a little bit of that in, or maybe a, a significant amount of that in Howl's Moving Castle. Um, and maybe to an extent, Princess Mononoke. Uh, but another symbolism with parakeets is that they fly in large flocks to keep each other company, which kind of enforces or reinforces this idea of a shared ideology. And I feel like this also shows how Mahito might be affected by his experiences living in Imperial Japan. Because there is a scene towards the beginning of the film where I think, you know, there's like soldiers marching through the town. Do you recall this? And, you know, the, they stop and they bow. Yeah. Um, 
kind of maybe reflecting his sentiments on like what it means to live in a country that's in the throes of war and what that means to a young child. And I think that's where the parakeets kind of come in. But that breathing, though. The, I love it. I, I love it. the nose breathing. I don't know what the hell's going on there. Maybe because they have giant nose holes the whole time. I was loving the, the parakeet breathing noises. Can you even hear birds breathe in I real life? I have no idea. <laughs> but I was like, why? I was confused at first. I'm like, why does it sound like someone's breathing really heavy through their nose? Then I realized it was coming from the movie, from the parakeets. And I'm like, what the fuck? I guess one other thing with bird motifs there's a lot of bird shit in this film too uh (laughs) you see it with mahito's father and you know even as the parakeets fly into the real world and they become regular size all of a sudden you see all the other like human characters just covered in bird feces they shit all over natsuko's face as she's having like a very like happy moment that they made it out alive and they're all together he's <laughs> just covered in bird shit even the heron when he first i think when he first makes his way into mahito's bedroom and then leaves oh, there's right. shit all yeah. over the windowsill yeah and i think um the news outlet vulture um mentions that it it provides comic relief uh but i think it's also part of like miyazaki's idea of you know, the messy and sort of natural aspects of life, um, which are in contrast to, you know, the order of, like, the order and structure of Imperial Japan that's kind of depicted in the film. And so I guess, you know, bird shit is is symbolic because Mahito's life is kind of messy right now, but that doesn't mean... His life is shit. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't mean his life is shit. It's just that's how life is sometimes. I got to ask about the the catalyst of all of this, which is apparently a stone from outer space. That's weird. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I didn't like that at all. That was weird to me. So like a lot of Miyazaki films are rooted in like supernatural stuff but more on the spiritual side versus like the interstellar side so when i found out that that the reason all of this can even exist is because there was a a meteor asteroid whatever it is that fell from outer space and had like some sort of powers to it i would have much have much preferred that miyazaki just went the spiritual route that it was some realm of life and death because that's literally what it is that's what the the great grand great grand uncle whatever Mm -hmm. that's what he created through this world is a realm of life and death so to tie that into a rock that fell out of space just makes it feel i don't know like it it just doesn't fit it feels so strange to me yeah i think this is where the film kind of gets too abstract for its own good Um, and just researching a little bit about this i think the point of the whole alternate world was you know, it was a way for maybe like the granduncle, but especially with Mahito to kind of ex- escape into their imaginations where it's a world where they don't have to worry about the problems and the issues of reality um, and kind of seclude themselves from it, even though there are examples and metaphors that appear in this world that kind of remind you of life's harsh realities. Uh, but 
for them to kind of or for the movie to, to say like oh this was all caused by a meteorite i don't know it kind of takes away from that magic yeah it almost loses significance not to say that that's not crazy to hear that a, a meteorite can allow a human to do all of these things and create a whole nother universe of sorts but it just loses that magic when you find out that's what's behind the scenes but part of that world is kind of like it's not like a time loop but it's it's playing with time because we learned from the grannies that there was an entire year that went by mm-hmm. where Mahito's mom Himi was lost they she got lost in the forest they they could not find her and a year later she comes back completely the same as if nothing had changed and has no recollection of where she was for that entire year. So I'm trying to like wrap my head around that in relation to the tower and to that world that the great granduncle is building. I, I can't. Like, I just don't know like what the significance is of that. Like, why did it have to happen that way? I mean, it, it kind of implies that there is no like real time or space in the world itself. I don't know. So is it like, I mean, I know the great grand uncle needed to find a successor, but was it that similar to Mihito, Himi had curiosity around the tower, went there, and to her, maybe it, it felt like a blink of an eye had passed, but really it was like a year in the real world? Well, I guess what needs clarity is like the time that she was gone in this tower, is that what we're seeing here when she becomes like the fire lady or whatever i think so yeah i think mm-hmm. there, there is a time loop happening right because that's the whole reason that Himi can't stay behind with mojito or go into his timeline is because that'll break it and he'll basically have never been born how did she know that though like that that's her son yeah mother's intuition i don't know yeah i don't know if that was because really that addressed. that Himi would not have any knowledge of what happens in the future Unless she just kind of saw things play out. Yeah, or maybe the great-granduncle told her. Because clearly mm. she's been in this world for a while, right? Like, she's a sta- she's an established person in this world. People know of her. People fear her and her fire abilities. Um, but, yeah, I mean, maybe she was able to see things that she couldn't in the real world by being in this universe. But then as soon as she exits, she forgets everything that had happened. Yeah. Which is what, that's what happens to Mihito too, right? Like, doesn't the heron say you're going to mm-hmm. forget all this shit anyway? Yeah. So, But then everything plays out according to how it needs to play out. Or at least in, in Himi's case. Yeah. And so um, with Himi, I want to talk about that moment <laughs> when she's parting ways with Mihito. Because that is what got me. So you have um, that you know, the, the climax happens, they're escaping the tower, and Ma- Mahito says, come to my timeline, like, go through the same door as me, and Himi says, no, I can't, I have to go back to my timeline, and Mahito tries to warn her that if she does that, she is going to die in that hospital fire, and I don't recall the exact line, but she says something like, that's okay, I'm not afraid of fire, and then I think Mahito says something to the effect of, like, I don't want to be without you, or Something like that, right? And then she says this line to him when she's accepting her, you know, future fate of dying in early death. She says, that's okay. I'll be so lucky to have you. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is 
that hits me right in the feels. Like, especially being a new mom, we were driving home (laughs) talking about the movie, as we mentioned earlier. And when I recalled that part, my eyes started to well up because I was thinking about the fact that, like, she would rather accept death in order to have her son than to go to a different timeline and live but be without her son. Like, that. that is so... I don't know, it's like it made me so emotional because she's saying the little time that she gets to have with him is so important to her that she would rather die than not have that. And I'm getting choked up talking about it right now. But <laughs> we were driving and <laughs> I was trying to like tell Carl about what I thought about that line and how impactful it was to me. And then my eyes started to well up with tears. And I was like, I can't see the road because I also have astigmatism. Oh, <laughs> and it was the evening. So like I already couldn't see shit as it was. And Carl's like, should we pull over? Are we going to crash? <laughs> and I'm like, it was so sad but beautiful at the same time and i think that line perfectly encompasses what this story is all about like i think that's what made this story um so enjoyable for me is because it's so rooted in the importance of family and those un- those unbreakable bonds i was just like ugh that that hit right in the feels i'd say that was probably the best moment in the movie um uh... Yeah, it, it kind of provides a bit of closure for Mahito um, and his mother. I know it's it it's kind of an imagined reality, but I think it's it's a way for him to fully process her her passing and and come to terms with it. Uh, and you know, the more that you talk about this moment, uh, I know we had said that the the heron says that they're gonna forget all of this ever happened. But I feel like Himi, when she grows older, may have some inkling of what had happened in this tower because Mahito discovers that she had left him a late gift, and that was the book, um, How Do You Live? I think that's the cameo for the the book that this film is loosely based on. Um and again, that's the Japanese title for the film, but it's a reference again to this book by Genz- Genzaburo Yoshino, which it's a 1937 novel that has an unrelated plot about a young boy and his uncle navigating through the ups and downs of life. So I guess in a sense, it, it could be the young boy and here's Mahito and then the uncle is like the grand uncle that we see in this alternate realm. But I feel like Himi probably, like, she may have intentionally left this book for Mahito, knowing what her fate was going to be. Because you see him reading through this book, and he's, like, tearing up, because I'm sure there are a lot of life lessons in it for him. And it's, I think the book would thematically share the message that this film is trying to convey with his own journey of growth and acceptance. Did they establish why the mom was at the hospital? Did she work there or was she a patient there? Because if she was a Mm. patient there, I'm guessing that she had an illness that she was battling and maybe that's why she chose to leave the book. If If she worked there, I think that would be right up the alley of of the theory that you have where she was just an employee there but happened to succumb to the hospital fire which happened all very very quickly Mm -hmm. but knew that something was going to happen to her at some point and wanted to leave that 
book for her son. And like I said earlier, I think it's a crime that the localized title is The Boy and the Heron. I think the title of How Do You Live holds so much more significance um, and, and a direct correlation to what this movie is all about because it's basically his mother asking, now that I'm gone, how will you choose to live your life? Right. Because we see him through most of this film very angry, very confused, very distrusting of others. And that's part of what his journey is through this story is to figure out how he can accept certain things so that he can move on and live a happy, positive life. Yeah, why make it... Why make the title about a bird? <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> I get, there's just, yeah, there's so much more emotion behind the the question, how do you live, and seeing what Mahito goes through in this movie. As far as animation goes, I don't think there's much to say. Ghibli's animation is always superb and stellar. I do love how there's this sort of, vintage animation style to the film and i don't know if it's just because ghibli films or at least miyazaki films have this sort of homogenous look to them but i I really appreciated it here and i think i read somewhere that miyazaki was kind of still hand drawing and animating by hand for a majority of this film so not too many like cg elements at least cg elements that really stuck out yeah i agree i love that um studio ghibli not ghibli ghibli um i gotta keep reminding myself has this distinct look but also a distinct feel because there are plenty of other studios that have a distinct look but the feel of them progresses and becomes more and more modern as time goes on ghibli ghibli um is able to achieve a very nostalgic feel to their animation while still making it very modern like it, it's it looks clean it looks good there are some really impressive um, sequences or even just small movements of characters that look like f- totally fluid totally beautiful but it never loses that distinct um not old school i've already said nostalgic you know what i'm trying to get at like that mm-hmm. type of feel um, that almost makes you feel like a kid again when you're watching it, or in your case, if you even, if you haven't watched them as kids or the uh, Miyazaki films as kids, you at least get a sense of the classic nature of them. Yeah, you appreciate the way that you know animation was originally done through this film, and I again, I, I like, I like that aesthetic to the boy and the heron. Uh, I think another important thing to bring up in terms of this movie, is the voice acting. Uh, because, well, to preface, we did watch this movie subbed as usual. Yeah, and every time I buy movie tickets for our group um, for a Japanese film, I need like 10 people to confirm that it's subbed before I buy them because I panic every time. I like hold my breath when the movie's about to start. I'm like, oh my God, is it going to be dub? <laughs> yeah, and there was kind of a mix-up with theater the theaters that we were supposed to watch this movie in or um, or like, what do you call it like the auditorium or whatever um and so like i i think I, I was able to pinpoint which auditorium it was in and i looked out to the audience and just bluntly asked is this the subbed version <laughs> and someone did confirm and i was waiting with bated breath at the first line of the film and once i heard it was japanese i just had this huge sigh of relief um 
but yeah, there weren't many names that I noted in the Japanese VA cast, although I'm sure there's one that you did. Hell yeah, Takuya Kimura was the dad, which is crazy because he also did Howl from Howl's Moving Castle. Um, and I fucking love him. And the second the dad started talking, I'm like, that's Takuya Kimura. <laughs> I knew it. But yeah, that was probably the most exciting voice actor on the Japanese side. For me, anyway. I think it was probably more exciting for a Western audience is the cast of voice actors for the dub. And it's a very star-studded voice cast. And I think it would merit a rewatch for me um, to watch it in the English dub. Uh, Because you have... This is the most random casting. The Grey Heron is played by Robert Pattinson. And he sounds nothing like himself. He's like... Oh, you heard him? Yeah, I've seen clips. He sounds... I would never have guessed it in a million years. Yeah, I I still skipped out on the promo materials, but I'll have to to catch him in this role. Um, Christian Bale returns again to a Ghibli film. He voices Mahito's father, just like Takuya Kimura. And didn't Christian Bale also voice Howl? Yeah, so that's Whoa, what, what I meant. Like, yeah, he, he's <laughs> returning for another Ghibli stint. Um, who else is here? Karen Fuku, Fukuhara. Wait, so they both voiced Howl and they both voiced the father. Oh, They're mirroring even... each other. Wow. I, have they ever met in person? I feel like the, the universe would implode. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> uh, Karen Fukuhara plays Lady Himi, who is Maito's uh, mother. Um, I don't know who plays, or Luca Padovan plays Mahito, but I don't know what they've been in. Uh, Gemma Chan plays Natsuko. Um, she's been in a couple things. The Eternals, Crazy Rich Asians, some other things. Uh, this was cool. The granduncle is played by Mark Hamill uh, of Star Wars fame. Uh, another fun one is... The Pelican, played by Willem Friend. Yeah, Willem <laughs> Dafoe was in this movie. I would watch the dub, the dub just to see or to hear him voice act. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the last notable VA um, is that the Parakeet King was played by Dave Bautista. What? Um, what the fuck? Drax the Destroyer <laughs> of, of Marvel fame. Um, so yeah, it's a very interesting voice cast. And I... I, I know that there have been big names for Ghibli films in the past, but I feel like it's it's balls to the walls in this one. And I, I mentioned that one of my normie friends watched uh, the dub for The Boy and the Hare, and I have to ask what he thought of their performances. So I'm going to have to keep that in my mind as I'm editing this and, and, and follow up with him. Last but not least, uh, to talk about the music for this film... I don't know if I can really say much about the score, though. Um, it was composed by longtime Ghibli or Miyazaki collaborator Joe Hisaishi. Um, there's a very uplifting piano that kind of permeates throughout the, the musical score. Um, I think one track that this is highlighted in, um, if you go to the OST on like Spotify or another streaming service, um, it's the track Ask Me Why Evacuation. I think the piano really drives that track um, with feeling and emotion. But there weren't really any other tracks that stood out for me as much as 
some of the memorable songs and themes from past Ghibli works. But I think in this score, there's still the free-spirited melodies that are just as whimsical and as enchanting as ever. I mean, were there any pieces of music that stuck out to you um, while watching the film? Not really. I do vaguely recall some of the whimsical music in the very beginning of the film when you're when we first get introduced to like I think Natsuko's home and all of that. Um, like when when Mahito is like doing his his shit there, right? Like he's exploring. He's sneaking around. Um, he's looking for the hair and like oh, that kind of scene. I recall enjoying the music that plays in those particular parts, but I can't recall what the music sounded like. So that's as far as I got with that. I guess one thing I did note with the music um, is with the heron. I feel like he has this two-note musical motif whenever he appears, and it kind of sounds like a like a text message notification. <laughs> um, I don't know if you recall hearing it. It was kind of like a da-dun every time. Yeah. yeah. When he was like not behaving like a normal heron. Kind of. But I think that's, that's sort of in line with the symbolism of a heron acting as a messenger. And as I've been saying, how the heron... Is Delivering sort of... your text message to your phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, the heron's kind of like a catalyst for everything that happens in this movie. So I think, <laughs> you know, for for this motif to almost sound like, yeah, like a text message on your phone was pretty clever for Joe Hisaishi to use. And, you know, I don't know if that's what his intent was. I like to think so. Um, but, yeah, just talk about accolades for this. I think... The, the score for The Boy and the Heron actually earned Hisaishi's first ever nomination for a Western award because I think it's up for best original score for this year's Golden Globes. And it's only one of two animated movies in this category, the other one being Daniel Pemberton's score for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which is mind-blowing to me. Like, I figure, like, a... a Music, the music score for like Howl's Moving Castle, that's become so iconic, like the theme song, that Joe Hisaishi wasn't considered for an award nomination for that film. So it's just, it blows my mind that this is his first ever award nomination, at least on the Western front. Yeah, that is surprising, but it's still a good thing. I mean, it, it's great to see that it's finally happening, and hopefully that'll be um, the catalyst for more Japanese uh composers to have their work recognized yeah i mean anime scores even those in tv series i think are vastly underrated so i'd love to see more recognition within that realm um the last thing i'll touch upon with music is that there is an ed for this movie uh, the ed is titled shikyugi which translates to spinning globe and it's by the artist kenshi yonezu who also did the opening for Chainsaw Man and the My Hero opening that Courtney really loves. The stretching one. Yeah. (laughs) Well, what I'll say with this ending, though, is that it kind of, it's giving Radwimps. You know how Radwimps kind of, like they compose songs for Makoto Shinkai films. I feel like 
that was also the intent for how this song was composed. But that's not to knock it down or downplay it at all. It is a, a very beautiful song. Um, and I feel like this, I think this is Kenji Yonezu's first kind of collaboration with Ghibli because um, he visited the studio back in 2018. And that kind of led to this project because I think Miyazaki listened to his composition for the 2020 Tokyo Summer Olympics, which was called Paprika. And I think he decided he wanted to work with Yonezu. So yeah, it's a very subdued but uplifting song in a way. I think you can hear faint bagpipes at the beginning of the song, which doesn't feel like within the realm of something you'd expect from a Japanese film. But you know, thinking about it now, I know that bagpipes, you, you kind of hear them a lot, like being played at funerals, right? So maybe thematically this kind of fits in with like Mahito dealing with the loss of his mother. Um, but then you have, I think it's like piano or strings that are very prevalent in the song that give it that emotional feel to it. Um, lyrics wise, I feel like the song is being sung from Mahito's perspective as he deals with his trauma, but kind of despite whatever life throws at him, he feels closure in knowing that his late mother would want what's best for him. And I think this is personified in the first verse which is the day I heard a voice patting me on the back, telling me to go ahead. And then the rest of the song, and it continues with exploring and, and living life with purpose and meaning like a spinning globe. So you have lines in the chorus like, I catch the wind and start running, overcoming the rubble. At the end of this road, someone is waiting for me. Dream of light shining through at any day of the week. Open the door this moment like revealing hidden secrets. Can't keep myself from longing for more like the spinning globe. Yet another reason the title How Do You Live was a great fit for the movie. I don't know why they switched it. Yeah, missed opportunity there. And that brings us to our final thoughts for The Boy and the Heron. So how many Heron Your Grievances out of 10 would you give this film? I would give this film a 7.5 out of 10. I feel like the story was decently clear, unlike some of the other Miyazaki films that we've seen, but it still had a lot of that abstractness and at times was, again, pretty convoluted. Uh, the animation was gorgeous. The music was nice from what I can recall. I mean, it wasn't bad, so it didn't, you know, it didn't kind of give me a visceral reaction, but... Again, a lot of that beginning stuff could have probably been cut to give the movie better pacing and flow. The The two hours was long, and I mean, you can have a great film that's two hours long, but the beginning part was just kind of like things were happening, and just like just stuff was happening versus like things were happening to progress the story or things were happening because it was part of the story. So um, I, I, I would have liked to have seen maybe some of that shaved down a little bit just so that the, the beginning pacing didn't feel so dragged out. And again, it does sometimes feel like Miyazaki just kind of randomly and arbitrarily adds stuff into his world as a way of world building, but sometimes it does feel a little exhausting. It, maybe there's significant meaning to these things. Maybe I'm just not elitist enough of an anime fan to understand these things. Um, maybe it just went right over my head, but it does feel like Again, if some of those things were, were cut back, we would have had better pacing and flow overall. But I very much enjoyed it. I think it's one of the more um, relatable 
impactful and meaningful um, stories that Miyazaki has done because it touches on family, which everyone can um, can find some connection with. And I mean, it hit me right in the feels. I, I still I still can't get over that line. I'll be so lucky to have you. Like maybe this sounds cheesy, but that's kind of what I think about our son. I'm I'm so lucky to have him. We're so lucky to have him. And I think that that line probably meant a lot to Miyazaki, knowing that this is rooted in some of his own experiences. And you can feel it. You can feel that um, that specialness that's embedded in the story and, and the adventure that Mahito goes on. So overall, solid movie. Uh, but I I would say that, 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 that there are better, more entertaining, and maybe more well-executed Miyazaki films out there. But what would you rate it? I, too, would give The Boy and the Heron a 7.5 out of 10. At the core of it, the film is a wonderful coming-of-age story that carefully and respectfully navigates the adolescent feelings and emotions of dealing with significant trauma and how to forge a positive path moving forward despite a world that throws its trials and its tribulations your way. With that said, I feel that the film tries to capture the magic of Miyazaki's previous works, but to limited degrees of success. It does contain all the staples of a Ghibli film that help in giving it that broad appeal, from the supernatural elements to the cutesy creatures to the smattering of metaphors and allegories, but it may start to feel a little too abstract for a casual viewer or an anime fan to fully enjoy where the messaging of the film can kind of get lost in all that the film throws at you. Unless you're an anime elitist who can fully grasp the depth that this film evokes, in which case, kudos to you. (laughs) Maybe I'll learn to appreciate the film more upon several rewatches, and most especially with its well-casted dub, But I guess to confirm my own initial opinions of the film, I can actually turn to Hayao Miyazaki himself. Because after the preview screening for The Boy and the Heron that was held in late February earlier this year, uh, there was a message from Miyazaki that was read out loud where he said, Perhaps you didn't understand it. I myself don't understand it. Did he really? (laughs) What the fuck? Well, there you go. There There you you fucking go. (laughs) Straight from the maestro's mouth. So the boy and the heron may not be for everyone and may not be fully understood by everyone, but in some way or another, I think it is still worth the watch. That reminds me of um, the creator of Evangelion. Didn't he also say in an interview when they asked about some special like meaning the, the behind crosses something. or something i think so this is all off of memory i could be botching this but uh they asked him like why did you put that in there what significant meaning does he have does it have and the creator was just like i don't know i liked it it <laughs> looks cool. cool or like the creator of 86 <laughs> yeah why the, the mechas in there look like spiders and like oh they, they just, just look cool, cool. <laughs> um but <laughs> what we wanted to bring up is like we, we've been talking about how the, the boy and the heron is vastly, I was going to say superior, but let me, I want to flip it. Uh, How Do You Live, the title, that title is vastly superior to The Boy and the Heron. And I was thinking, there's another example of this where we've seen like an anime translated to a Western audience and it doesn't fit the same way. It reminds me of, we brought this up before, in Pokemon where Brock says like something about, oh, these jelly donuts are great. 
but we know now that they were eating onigiri. Yeah. <laughs> That's how I feel with this title. <laughs> Again, yeah. Missed opportunity. But they should have just titled the film Jelly Donuts. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You didn't even eat any jelly donuts. <laughs> but anyways, it is what it is. But yeah, it's still still a good film overall. And if any of you guys have seen The Boy and the Heron, uh, whether in Japan or the overseas release that recently happened, let us know what you thought. Because we're curious if we are the only ones who found this movie enjoyable, but still a bit confusing. But thank you guys, as always, for listening. We appreciate your support so, so much and hope you enjoyed our review. Subscribe, as always, to Strictly Anime on your favorite podcast service. Join our Discord to chat with us. Follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series, on Twitter at Strictly Series, and check out our website, thestrictlyseries.com. If you'd like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly Series and tune into Strictly Jojo, our other podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure. All links are in the description. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy. I'm losing my voice at the end. <laughs> stay weeb. <laughs>